Welcome everyone to the Priceless Podcast. My name is Mikhail Sechen and I'm your host. And this podcast is made in partnership with the European Forum of LGBT Christian Groups. Today I have a guest from Spain, finally, uh, someone from Spain. I was looking to have someone uh, from that part of Europe for a long time. Today I don't even know how to introduce him, because when I read what he studied, my first question was, what? He didn't study, study medicine? <laughs> But I'm going to ask him why he didn't study medicine, because he studied so many things. Well, uh, uh, let's go to our guest, uh, Renato. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, how are you today? Thank you, uh, Mihail, for the invitation. This is for me is a, a new experience and experiment. So I quite look forward to see how this all works in practice. And I'm feeling fine, actually. Uh, today is a sunny day where I am in Spain. We've had a very cold month of January with lots of clouds and lots of wind. So this is, I'm feeling great. You know, the sun is shining and uh, it's, it's a very nice day. And I've had a good sleep too, which also helps. So uh, here I am. And thank you also for introducing me as someone from Spain. I have actually, in actual fact, lived in Spain for nine years altogether, but I wasn't born here. So, uh, but yeah, I, I feel pretty much at home here, I must say. Just to give a little background when I said why you didn't study medicine, because from what I uh, read about you and also know from you, because we know each other now several years, um, you studied Spanish and Spanish literature, you studied, studied Danish, Danish literature, you studied sociology and theology. Uh, is there anything else? Something I forgot. You studied so many things. Anthropology. Anthropology. Um, yeah, here you go. Yes. So why not medicine? Sure. Well, a brother of mine studied medicine, so he covered that part <laughs> of my life. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided at some point, okay, I can do only so much, that's enough. <laughs> that is very well said. Well, you never know, there is still time. So next time there we is. see each other, maybe, maybe oh. you will be on medicine, med you'll study medicine. Well, who knows? Uh, but you're certainly <laughs> right that there's always um, room for, for more new stuff to learn and new stuff to research. And yes, every year brings new subjects to me or, or I come to them. And uh, yes, uh, life, life is amazing. There, there's so much to learn and so much to share. So, um, so here we are. I completely agree. Well, uh, we'll talk more. You're also an author uh, and we'll talk more about your book, especially the last book that came out in English. Yes. And I mean, it came out first in other languages, but it also last year it came out in English uh, yes. so that our listeners can hear about this. But mm. first, I would like to know a little bit more about you. So... Before we start, can you tell our listeners and speakers what your sexual orientation is and gender identity? Sure. Um, I accept that. Uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, of course, are modern categories that we use in our time. And they were not used in the past, but I accept that. Um, it's just a clarification. Uh, and according to uh, this mm, current system, I classify myself as male and gay um, and am open also to new developments um, in this area because every, if not every year, but every decade certainly brings in new insights in the diversity of human gender and sexuality. So I, I, don't, I don't close the door on, on future mm. insights, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you said that. First of all, we didn't say your full name. Uh, mm. So your name is Renato Links. Uh, can yes. you tell our listeners and viewers a little bit more about yourself? When you would introduce yourself, what would you like our listeners and viewers to know about you, who you are? Right. Um, I'm, first of all, a world citizen. Um, I was born in a rural part of Western Denmark, um, as rural as they get. 
small village and lots of farms. And my favorite subject in primary school was geography. I always dreamed about the world, uh, mm. living in this you know, outpost almost, you know. Uh, but the, the world, I always felt at home in a world, and I loved geography. You know, I, I learned all the names and all the maps and all the cities and rivers and what have you. So that, that, that was my passion. So I think it began early in my life, this discovery of the world. And, um, and as I then got... Um, became an adult and became independent and I could make my own decisions. I have then traveled widely and lived in many different countries. And Spain is one of my favorite places. So that's why I've now spent, it adds up in, I've been here on and off, uh, but it adds up to nine years now, going on to 10 years soon. So um, that's sort of one part of me. Uh, the other part is, I think my, I would, comment on my Christian side. I grew up in this very Christian family. And what I mean by very well, my, both my parents were active Christians. Uh, my mother would um, play the organ in the church on Sundays. And my father was uh, in charge of uh, keeping the church, uh, the upkeep um, and maintenance of the church, basically. And he also um, supported the, um, the pastor doing the service in different ways. So they were both just, you know, completely um, involved in church life. And in, in addition to that, my father was some sort of a lay missionary. Uh, he would sometimes go out on his bicycle and go to some neighboring town and, and speak to a, a group of Christians there and so on. Very, uh, I would say, old-fashioned, traditional Christianity. Um, my mother was a bit more open-minded than he was, so I found her easier to talk to. He, he was almost impossible to speak to, actually. <laughs> and certainly about religion. I, I, had, I, I, I was afraid of him even. I, I, I never discussed religion with my, with my dad, hardly ever. Uh, but with my mom, it was easier. She was open to dialogue. So this was the environment, and we were a whole lot of uh, siblings. Um, we could have been 12, but one died very young, and so we were 11. So that created, you know, also some difficulties because sometimes uh, I felt I was just one, a face in the crowd. Um, it wasn't like this. Per, I was just, I, I, per, an individual. I was just a number, basically, mm. in, in a large uh, group. And so there was this anonymous feeling somehow to growing up in this, in this place. Um, and so I, I never liked that part of it, to be honest. Um, um, fortunately, I was allowed to study. You mentioned the different things I've been studying. Unfortunately, I was allowed to choose humanities when I came to secondary school um, because my older brothers, they had also chosen science. But I wanted uh, humanities because I, I have a flair for languages. Uh, so I instinctively knew that that, that would be bet the best thing for me. And mathematics, well, I could handle it, but I wasn't brilliant. So I decided, no, 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 that's not for me. Um, so um, I did humanities, but I had a major crisis um, in secondary school because of my sexuality, because it, it, it didn't match what people talked about mm. uh, i was different and i didn't know if there was anybody else out there because it was not hardly ever spoken about and if it was spoken about people were telling jokes about homosexuals uh which that did not do much for me um i didn't identify with with the people in those jokes and uh, so it was, that was a, a major issue for me. And I, looking back, I think I was going through depression much mm. of the time in, in second, secondary school. I, I barely managed to make it through secondary school, actually, because of the depression. But thankfully, uh, God allowed me to, to come through with the exam. And um, then I spent a couple of years completely away from studying because I was sick and tired of school at this time. Um, so I, I, I surprised, well, not surprisingly, unsurprisingly, I would say I went abroad 
uh, spent a few months in Norway. Then I went to Germany um, and then back to Denmark because I realized, and oh yeah, and then I had to do, uh, I should do military service, but I decided to be an object, a conscientious objector. Uh, I, I didn't like the military philosophy at all. And also my mm -hmm. faith uh, f told me that there were, would be, a, should be a different way. So I chose that. So I, I did that service for one year as an alternative service. It was not very nice, to be honest. I wouldn't recommend it. But at least I, I didn't have to do military service. Uh, so, But that was one year. And then I decided, okay, it's time to decide to study. And at this time, I had been uh, spending some months at a Christian education center for adults. And that was very good in some ways. Um, and there I was told by a theologian, uh, we were told basically during a lecture that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of homosexuality. And I still remember that day um, and that particular part of the lecture, uh, it was like, it was a shock to hear that because in those days, we're now back in 1966, imagine that. In those days, the word homosexuality was not never said in public. It was sort of almost like you know, some hush hush or he 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 or ha ha ha, but it was not spoken in a serious uh, lecture uh, given by a theologian. It was the first time I, I heard that, and I remember the shock effect of it. And everybody in the room, we were maybe more than a hundred students listening. <gasps> we all went like that. <gasps> he said that word into the microphone. We couldn't believe it. And so that had a huge impact on me. It didn't help my coming out process, obviously. I was 21 and still not out. Uh, I had tried to see a, a doctor before that, but he wasn't very helpful. And he sent me to a psychiatrist who didn't know what he was talking about. So I was still very much in the dark at this time. But the, I think the good part that come out of it, when I look back from that lecture where we were told about Sodom and Gomorrah, the good part is that a few days later, I began to wonder, is that the only way to understand that story? I mean, I, had, I couldn't go to the, to the man who spoke there uh, to say, hey, I disagree with you. I had no way of disagreeing. I had, I had no knowledge. But something in me told me, mm, maybe that's not the only way. So I decided then to say, okay, maybe I should study theology. And I did that for one year, and I felt terribly bored, to be honest with you. I didn't like the way they did things at the faculty. The only class I enjoyed was Hebrew. Mm. Hebrew language was fantastic. We were reading Genesis from day one. It was exactly what I wanted. I wanted just to get to know the Bible. But the Greek class was awful. We were reading some Greek classics that were extremely boring, at least for me. And it reminded me of my Latin classes, which were also excruciatingly boring in secondary school because we were always reading about wars, the Punic War and the Gallic War in the Latin classes. And I mean, what, what kind of literature is that to serve to a young person who wants to engage with life? I mean, <laughs> I yeah. just, when I look back, it was the craziest thing you can... Because much later in life, I've discovered all the interesting literature you find in Latin and Greek. There's lots mm. of it, you know, where they discuss life, where they discuss love, etc. Lots of stuff that we could have engaged with as a young person. Anyway, so that it's too late to complain about that now, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, looking back, I just felt, oh, my God, all the good things that could have come out of those years. But anyway, so I think what I'm trying to say that that year in the th at the faculty, I realized, no, this is not the right time for me to study theology. It was just because the Greek class, as I told, we were not even allowed to read the Bible. We had to read Greek classics. And it was just, as I said to you, a repeat of the, of the Latin lessons that I had in secondary school. I said, mm, not for me. And besides, everybody else wanted to train to become a pastor in the Lutheran church, except me. And I felt I was an outsider. So I said, no, never mind. Mm -hmm. I quit. And I studied social science, as you mentioned, for a year. And then uh, the, the mathematics of that in the sociology class uh, then got to me. 
and I realized I can't handle this. Uh, I remember one day coming into the sociology class, they were discussing statistics and I yeah. looked at the blackboard and it was full of formulae and I didn't understand a word of it. It was like Chinese. And I realized I don't think I can handle this. And I had to take extra lessons in maths and it, was, it, was, it almost killed me. So I realized, okay, I think I have to go back to the drawing board and find out what do I really want. And that's where Spanish come in, came in. That was just the right thing for me. Um, I could have gone to other faculties too, but English, French, and German, they were full of people, uh, hundreds of students, and I felt I would drown in the, in the river there. So I went to Spanish, and it was fantastic. There was just 30 students enrolling that year, and you could get to know everyone, and I, I loved it from day one. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why, you, why I'm talking to you from Spain today, because it became part of my life. So that sort of explains that. Um, I suppose then you could ask me, why did you study Spanish? Why, what did you want to do? Right? And um, sure, uh, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I, I did train. I did the, uh, the whole university thing, got my exam, and came to Spain several times as a student during that time because I wanted to practice what I was learning and so on and all of that was good and well but then it was becoming fashionable to talk about introducing spanish in secondary schools in denmark so most of my fellow students wanted to become teachers spanish mm. but i remembered very well what i was like when i was a young student in secondary school and i didn't want to go back there and teach students like like me <laughs> Like me, because, you know, with all my depressions and all my stuff, I just felt, yeah. oh, no, this is a world I don't want to go back to. So I know I needed to do something else. And that's why I went into anthropology, actually, because in American anthropology, they were teaching uh, the, the cultures uh, that you find in among the Aztecs, the Mayan culture and the Inca culture were being taught there. And I could read the classic, uh, the, the old uh, reports that um, the monks and the colonizers were writing down in Spanish. I could read them in the mm. original language. So I thought, ah, here's where I can use my Spanish. So I tried that for one year and it was fantastic. I loved it. But there was no job opportunities there. So I said, I don't think I should spend more time in this faculty. And in the meantime, I had met, I was teaching Spanish myself because I had to make a living. And uh, one of the groups I met there uh, wanted me to, well, they were going to Cuba, actually. Uh, in those days, it was fashionable to be in solidarity uh, with Cuba and other places. So they, they would form groups uh, and, and send them there and, and you know, work on projects. So I was teaching a group like that. They wanted to know a little Spanish before going, and they ended up, you know, convincing me that I should go with them. And they loved it because the, then at least they had one fluent speaker, Spanish speaking in the group. So I became their interpreter for one month. And I discovered there that I can do it. Thanks to me, they could communicate with the Cubans, and the Cubans communicated with them. And it was a fantastic experience. So I went back to Denmark and uh, studied two additional years at, a at another university to become a professional translator and interpreter. And so that's, that became my career, actually. So I worked most of my adult life as um, a translator and interpreter. And, and one thing it, it certainly taught me, and that has now uh, become a great uh, help in my biblical work, is that the many different texts and many different settings I've been working in have taught me that, yes, you will, you will come across many difficulties when you're trying to translate a text or when you're trying to be the interpreter between different groups who are entirely different from each other. Uh, there's so many challenges involved in that because you are the bridge between one and the other, right? And you have to make sure that they understand each other and you have to make sure that the text you're translating becomes understandable in the other language, uh, even though it may be very difficult uh, in the first place. So those, but all of those processes have taught me some skills that I have been able to use uh, when I uh, discuss the Bible and I do biblical research. Yeah. I've come across many different, yes, many difficult texts 
in fact, all of them are have difficulties, but at least I have some I have some tools in my box that I can use. So I'm grateful for for that career I had um, as a translator and interpreter. And um, so it was until the 1990s I was working at the European Parliament as an interpreter um, in Brussels and Strasbourg and a little bit in Luxembourg. And in those years, um, it was a great job in some ways because we had long weekends. Mm. Uh, at the European Parliament, uh, the members of Parliament go home by Friday noon and come back by Monday noon, which is fantastic because that means you virtually have three days off. So those long weekends, you know, they uh, made me um, think what I'm going to spend my, my time on. And then this uh, concern about the Bible and homosexuality came back in full force because it was being debated all over the place in the 1990s. And many, many books were coming out. So I bought books and books and books and read them, stacks of books. And, uh, and these books were helping me in many ways, you know, to find answers, but they weren't giving me all the answers I needed. So finally came the idea that Okay, uh, I've read a lot of books now, but I haven't found all the answers yet. So should I perhaps then try to do my own research? And that's how it began. And I tried to write on my own, but it was, it was very difficult. Um, it I even it became too emotional for me sometimes mm. when I read about all the injustices and the cruelty committed in the past by the Inquisition, burning people alive and what have you. And it, was, it became too much. So it wasn't until I uh, realized that I needed help. And so I signed up to do a PhD in the United Kingdom. And there it actually worked out very well because in the UK, I could go straight in uh, and do the PhD without having to take all the basic courses in theology. Mm -hmm. As long as I, I had an academic degree, in some other area, that was okay with them. So that's why I went to the UK. And guess what? My thesis became an analysis of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, so I want to go back a little bit. You already talked about your growing up and that and how it felt to be in this world where it wasn't even talked about or when it was talked about, it was laughed about or just used it in jokes in a very bad way. Or they used the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to scare you. How was it for you to accept yourself and how did you get to the place to really accept yourself in such a surrounding? Yes. Well, it was definitely a long process. Um, there was nowhere you could go and, and talk to anyone. And I had absolutely no trust in my father uh, for, for this kind of subject. Um, there was no way I, I would even dream of asking him for, you know, a, a confidential interview. Um, so, and my mom... I don't know, she might have or not, might not have, I'm not sure. But there was, I, it, there was just this um, strange feeling surrounding it that this is a kind of subject people don't talk about. I tried, I remember when my teens, you know, I tried to go to the libraries. Uh, there, were, there weren't many of them to look up whatever was there. And I look, you know, in some of these old encyclopedias, uh, mm. I, I maybe, I, maybe I could find three or four lines in, in some of them, you know, explaining whatever, but it didn't do much for me because, you know, it, it was much too little and also it sounded a bit old fashioned, some of the things they were saying. So it wasn't like, it, I, it wasn't me they were talking about. Um, so it was, it was a very, very lonely, an extremely lonely time. And, um, much, much later, many years later, and in fact, until very recently, I didn't even know about it, that several of my siblings were depressed too, but for other reasons. 
but even depression was never talked about. Um, so it, it was a pretty dismal kind of place really to grow up. Not because my parents were evil, but they, did, they, didn't, they had no idea what was going on in our heads. They had no idea. Um, so it was a, a long journey really, um, with many ups and downs and particularly downs, more downs than ups. And so I think I was around either 17 or, or early 18. I'm not sure. I probably was 17 ish when I approached our family doctor who was such a nice man. I, I had thought whenever he, he appeared. Uh, but he, he didn't know what to say. Uh, I yeah. asked him for a private interview. And uh, so I tried to, and I didn't even have the right words, you know, to explain how I felt because I'd never heard anybody talk about this before. So he misunderstood me. And he thought I was an experienced gay man who went out cruising uh, for contact. And when he said cruising, I did, or a word similar to that, I didn't, I hardly knew what he meant, but I sort of intuitively realized it. And that, but I remember the shock effect it had on me. Oh, God, there are people out there who go cruising? I, nobody ever you know, told me, so how would I even know? I just needed some help, really, uh, somebody who could explain a few things to me. So he sent me to the psychiatrist who was very old-fashioned and a very unpleasant experience, to be honest. Um, he basically told me, oh, well, just wait for another few years. You'll see. You'll be fine. And, you know, this lovely girl will come along. You'll fall in love and you'll forget all about, about your, what you're going through now. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So it didn't help much. But, I mean, so all I could do was wait. And I waited for six years now, in and out of depression all the time. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until actually I, I really connected with the Spanish that that year I felt, because that was such a major step forward in my life. Now I know what I want to study. And that fell into place. It clicked. So after that, the other thing came up boom, from inside. It was, I felt almost like a knockout. One day I was studying Spanish and I couldn't read what was on the page because all of this stuff came up from inside saying, what about me? Mm. And then I realized I'd been waiting for six years for clarity and it hadn't come. So then that's the time I went to the student union. They had set up a new counseling service. Now I was able to speak to the psychologist. She was fantastic. She was completely the opposite of that psychiatrist I'd met when I was 17, 18, because she was the kind of person who, who there was because the psychiatrist, I still remember that scene, you know, a, a, a very short man wearing dark glasses and sitting at the end of a long writing desk. And you were on the other side, sitting on the edge of this chair. Oh, and no. <laughs> he wouldn't let me talk. He did all the talking and he wouldn't let me talk. And he was like, oh, do I really need this? You know, that feeling all the time. She was completely opposite. Um, she, uh, she didn't have a writing desk. She had just a, a very small uh, table where you can put a teacup. And she was sitting on one side and I was on the other. So we could see each other full length, as it were. Mm. And she just spoke a couple of sentences and saying, uh, welcome. And um, I'm sure uh, you want to discuss something with me and what exactly uh, brings you here. And so I, I spoke for a few words and she said, Actually, just before you go on, let me tell you that for me, uh, sexual orientation is an issue that is important, and I want to discuss it with you, but just be, I want you to know that I have no problems with whether you are homosexual or bisexual or heterosexual. So, and I said, wow. And she let me talk. I spoke nonstop for half an hour for the first time in my life, and I was 24 years old. Hmm. So that became such a healing process. Um, I saw her four times, and then I thought I could manage on my own, and I, sp I suppose I could. But looking back, I think I probably should have really gone into therapy for a year or two to heal all my wounds, uh, because that takes a long time. That takes a long time. But thankfully, at, at least I made it there. And so I was able to to continue studying. And as I said, I loved Spanish and I could, I joined an activist group 
an LGBT activist group. It had a different name back then. But that was good too. Um, and I met some interesting people. And at one point, I even joined the Gay Liberation Front and was with them for a couple of years. So that taught me a lot um, about me and about sexuality and, and, all, and all the rest of it. So that was really helpful. And I think the good part also for me is that I never lost my faith. Mm. Despite the fact, you know, that my parents were, they, they would not have been able to help me very much uh, anyway, because they didn't know much themselves. And that environment, you know, uh, which was not very good for a young person to grow up in, really, um, very rigid, very authoritarian rules and regulations everywhere. Um, so the best thing you could do many times was to hide. Uh, and my hiding place, you know, was the pigeon loft. They, they were my best friends, the pigeons. <laughs> and I literally mean that because I felt safe with them all the time. And they were entertaining because pigeons can be quite entertaining birds. They live in couples, you know, and they have their, their problems like human couples do sometimes. So that was really, for me, very interesting. But anyway, um, to bring me, ah, I'm, I was raising this faith issue. I think despite all the hardships that I went through psychologically, because I never went to bed hungry, I must say that. Uh, my parents weren't rich, but at least they did their best, and we always had food on the table. But psychologically, you know, there was a lot of hunger in my life. and But I never gave up my faith, and I'm grateful for that, which in a way I think has actually helped me through many times, um, even if it's been difficult and I've been depressed and so on. There's always been that element of faith there. Um, when you look at all... You know, you are growing up, uh, you listen to these stories. I mean, you already said probably in church it wasn't much talked about. But then you met this professor who said this about Sodom and Gomorrah. How did you manage to reconcile, reconcile that with your faith, um, you know, and keep your faith with all these, let's say, ugly things that came that yes. were thrown at you. Yes. In fact, yes, when I look back, I'm a little surprised myself um, because I have known other people who walked away from their faith, who felt I can't handle this. So if, if God doesn't want me this way or if the Bible doesn't like me this way, well, what the heck? Uh, I'm going somewhere else. I've met quite a few people who simply gave up on mm. Christianity because they couldn't handle that conflict. And for some obscure reason, I have, I have never felt, no, they have no right to take my faith away. Somehow, I, I, I don't know where that comes from, but I have always had that conviction, no, that I, I, my faith is my faith in the, no matter what they say. Um, so that, that has always been with me and I see that as a blessing. It took me, you know, I did read over the years. Um, well, you know, obviously my, my years as an activist uh, helped a lot, you know, to put things in place. And I realized, no, 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 being gay and being lesbian and what have you, that's perfectly normal because uh, we're a there's a lot of people out there uh, you can share uh, that story with. And they've, and look at them, you know, they're perfectly normal beings. Uh, the only thing that distinguishes us from the rest is our orientation and maybe our way of talking or way of behaving in some ways. Well, that's fine. Um, but, but we're people just the same. So that has been, that was, a, that was really helpful on, on the one hand. But the one thing I didn't get in those days in, in the um, gay and lesbian uh, circles was faith uh, discussions because they, these were very secular. Mm. So it was good from an activist point of view, you know, and from to sort of you to understand your sexuality, but there was no discussions anywhere in those circles about faith. Um, that, thankfully, that has come later. So um, today I feel very much integrated in 
in as a I feel an integral person. Uh, my faith and my sexuality and whatever else, uh, my profession, my story, uh, all of that um, is, is a perfect uh, whole. It, it's it's not sort of fragmented anymore. Uh, I have to you know, divide myself up into different sections and I can only live out them, you know, separately. That is no longer the case. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm able to live in an age where I can be me in all ways, all different ways at the same time. You experienced a lot of pain and you also mentioned that, you know, you wish you would have stayed with the psychologist or even went to therapy to get more healing mm -hmm. was there healing and what helped you to get healed well that is a very good question mikhail uh, because i do think everything is a, in life is or at least in my life has been a process but there are then also moments that sort of stand out mm. in the middle of that process and I remember when I finally got to the point where I realized I need to do my PhD myself now to do my own research to get to those answers I haven't yet found in other people's books. They are helping me in many other ways, but they haven't given me these answers. Then I, I was living in Spain at the time, um, but I then decided to go to the UK because writing a thesis in English is a major task, a major undertaking. And I realized very soon, you need to be in an English-speaking environment if you want to write in this language so that one thing will feed into the other. And that was the right decision to make. Um, so I moved to the UK, but it was a bit of a culture shock too, um, in many ways, because uh, I, was, I lived in Madrid and I had lots of friends and activities, and I went to this place in Plymouth in southwestern England where I knew nobody and had to start from scratch, and the weather was awful, uh, windy, rainy, every other day. <laughs> it was like, oh, I just came up from sunny Spain, and here I am. And it, yeah, it reality awful, is, yeah, reality is that most of the people from the north move to the south, not the other way around. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That is very true. And I even heard while I was there, I, I was unfortunately, I didn't meet her because I think I might have been able to help her a little bit. I heard about a, at the same college where I was studying, uh, I heard about a girl who'd come up from Spain at one point. She only spent two weeks there and went back crying. She couldn't handle it. And I only was told about it afterwards. Oh, for goodness sake. Why didn't you introduce her to me? I could have spoken to her in Spanish and we could have commiserated a little bit. She and me. <laughs> that might have helped her out of that dark hole she landed herself in. So I felt really sorry for that girl, but I understand her too. I was a bit yeah. older and she, maybe this was her first time abroad. So it was too much for her to handle, right? I'd been abroad before. So I just realized, oh God, this is miserable, but I have to, I have to stick it out. And so I did. And it was, so the first months were really difficult. And, and also because I arrived in the month of May at the end of the academic year, which is not a very normal time for anyone to, to go to a new university. So nobody was ready to, to, to accept or welcome a new student and so on. So it was pretty, everything was pretty awkward actually. So, but at least uh, I could now uh, write, uh, write and, and speak and, and think in the same language all the time, which was helpful. And my supervisor was good, Lisa Isherwood. She was a feminist. Um, she's now uh, retired, uh, but she was a feminist and a lesbian. And she liked liberation theology. So she was, she was on board mm. with my thesis. She, she quite liked what I was writing. So I got some good support from Lisa and the other professor at the college, Adrian. He was also very good. Um, he, he was straight, uh, but a nice man um, and a good, good academic. So I, I, I quite liked, liked the atmosphere with all of the, the conversations we had. And, and uh, it, it was a pretty good place to be. But we were very few students of theology. 
everybody else was training for other things. And most of the students were much, much younger than me. I was now in my mid-50s. And most of them were around 20. And <laughs> our lifestyles were not, not very much alike. <laughs> I can <Quite> imagine. I won't go into too much detail there, but at least the college was good to me. They gave me a large room at the student residence, which was meant for two people, but I was allowed to have it on my own, which was very nice. But anyway, so I, I stuck it out for two years in Plymouth um, under those circumstances. But the, the, the best thing, you were talk, we were talking about healing a minute ago. And imagine this. I start doing my thesis in January while I'm still in Spain. Then I moved to, to Britain in May and have to go through that culture shock. Um, uh, for all sorts of reasons, but I'm still working on this project, right? And I realized during the, I, in fact, my early idea, this is interesting too, my early idea was to write my thesis on Bible and homosexuality, mm. okay? But I realized very early on uh, that, my goodness, but each text is so complex that I don't think I can fit it all into one thesis. So at the end of that, exploration, I realized I have to focus on one. And then I took, you know, the most difficult of them all, Sodom and Gomorrah, because I really needed to get to grips with this text. It had been haunting me yeah, all my life, yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> so that's why I chose Sodom and Gomorrah. And I studied, I had to refresh to brush up my Hebrew, which had gone, grown very rusty over the years. So I bought several grammars and read them, you know, from cover to cover. And then I could read the text in Hebrew. And that was worth it. It was, it became an, an amazing healing process, reading it in the original language. Because it was just so different from what I expected. What I, what I found there. And the and what I'm telling you now happened in my first year of these four years it takes to finish a PhD, okay? When I got to the month of September that year, I was visiting with a friend in another place in southern England called Littlehampton on the coast. His name was Richard. And so I was spending the weekend there, and Richard was telling me about his work. He worked with addicts alcoholics and drug addicts and those kind of people. And he was a social worker. So he was telling me how he went about his work and, you know, what, what he could do with them and for them and so on. And I found that very interesting. I was still having my ups and downs with living in Britain because I, I think I was still going through some sort of culture shock. And then I also had um, that nasty experience that weekend of losing my very best reading glasses mm. because We'd gone on an, an outing uh, to a place called Arundel with a medieval castle and interesting places to visit in the museum. And I was having a great time there. And But on my when I was going home, I couldn't find my reading glasses, which were the best I ever had. I bought them in Strasbourg. I even remember the optician where I bought it. Fantastic. I was miserable. Uh, because I, I was still suffering from depressions, I should add. And so this is a good moment, you see. If you are mm, prone to suffer depressions, this kind of experience will plunge you into a dark hole. And so I was, I was landing myself in a dark hole there. So I had a very, I wasn't feeling very happy that evening. I woke up the next morning. More, and now is Sunday, right? See, around nine o'clock or so. And I had a strange experience. Uh, maybe it belongs to parapsychology. Maybe you know about that. I, I knew very little. But I had this strange experience. I woke up, and I was still in bed, and I opened my eyes, and I looked towards the window, and it was like seeing this, uh, some sort of TV screen. Mm. Screen, that, you know, like a big, oh, those flat TV screens, right? And there were a couple of words written on the screen. And they were saying, addiction 
equals depression. Depression equals addiction. And it was like summing up what I had been learning from Richard, telling me about his work with people who suffer from addictions, how you can help them. Ah, experience. Oh my God. They are like addictions. You can learn to heal yourself from them, to leave them behind. So that day just became a before and after experience for me. Mm. And life has not been the same. It's been so much better. It was like, almost like seeing the depression, you know, spreading its wings and flap, flap, flap out. Sometimes, you know, there have been difficult moments in my life since then. And on a couple of occasions, I have almost slipped back. But now, thankfully, I'm able to recognize the symptoms. So when depression comes knocking at the door, thankfully, I'm now able to recognize it. And I can say, no, thank you. I don't need you. So that, and isn't that just also amazing? The very first year that I really dig deep into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, my depressions disappear. Mm. So that's where healing, that's where I found real healing. It sounds, it sounds absurd, but to me, it makes a whole lot of sense. I think, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, we can label as absurd or, you know, it, some people can say, but this is such a simple thing. You know, you just thought or saw this image of addiction equals depression, depression equals addiction, and it did it for you. Yeah. Uh, but this is amazing. You know, the, the, yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear, you know, your journey of healing and this, this moment because you know it's just different for all of us how we yes. find it yes i i'm 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 absolutely i i'm reminded of what i have read a few places like you know in fairy tales of some sort um or old folk tales where i remember for example uh in in the city of lund which is in now in southern Sweden, which used to be eastern Denmark, but never mind, that's a different story. Uh, <laughs> in the city of Lund, there's this old cathedral, okay? And they tell, they tell a story about a demon who lived underground. And I think he was constantly trying to derange the building of the cathedral uh, in different ways. So they could never really, you know, finish the work because he would always come out at night, you know, and, and sort of undo everything that had been done during the day. And they didn't know how to handle this because this demon, you know, he lived underground and how do you get to him? And it wasn't, and I can't remember who that was, but part of the story is that one of the main persons uh, there, he was out walking and then he heard a discussion, a heated discussion going on underground between two people or two demons or whatever they were, uh, you know, raising their voices to it against each other. And they were, they, were, they were sharing each other's names. And then he realized, ah, maybe the demon who's coming to, you know, to undo our work, that must be his name. So once he had learned that name, he was able to confront him. And I can't remember exactly how they did it, but he confronted the demon mentioning his name and the demon lost his power. Hmm. And so I realized that's exactly what happened to me. You know, the demon of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, and, you know, the Bible that had been haunting me through all these years, once I was able to sit down and look it in the face and learn its name and say it out loud, it lost all its power over me. And so that's another way of describing the healing experience. A lot of people out there in the world run away from their demons, right? And they hide in alcohol or whatever else they do. But in my case, it, it was the opposite direction that, that brought me the healing. Now that you talk about this, that you confronted your demon, looking back at everything you went through, what are the things that you're really proud of? It's kind of hard to say because I was raised in an environment where, where the word proud didn't exist. I know. 
<laughs> May I challenge you? <laughs> oh, that, that was probably the, one of the worst things one could be in that rural community. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <clears throat> proud of. I think happy. I can say I, I, I'm certainly happy about things. Um, I'm happy about all the things that God has given me and all the things that I've been able to come out of that have been really difficult. And I'm really happy about the, all the things I've studied because all of them have contributed to, be, to who I am today and they've helped me immensely in my biblical work, which is now for me the, the greatest thing on planet Earth, basically. Um, because all of that help feeds in, you know, to my research and my gives me tools. All of that gives me tools, Matley. I'm happy about all these achievements that I that God has been enabled me to to do. Yes. And when you look back and look at the things you did, what is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Something hurt. Mm. Some things I did and some things I didn't do. There are moments that I that come back to haunt me sometimes. Yes, I wish I could have done differently. But then, of course, I suppose the the consolation or justification or whatever you would call it is that well, I didn't know better at the time. Um, but yes, there are moments I wish I could have gone back to and, and done it over again and do a, do a better job. Yes, definitely. I'm, I was just trying, you know, to skim my horizon to see or scan my horizon to see is there anything I'm proud of. Maybe I'm a little proud of, and I have actually a chapter on that in, in, in this latest book of mine, mm -hmm. right? Maybe I'm proud of having, at least for myself, um, said goodbye to the doctrine of original sin. I feel very proud and very relieved. I'm perfectly able to let go of that one because it has never helped me in any way. And now I'm, I, I've said goodbye to that. And yes, I'm quite proud. And I, I can argue now also why I, I, don't, I don't want it and I don't need it. So, and I explained that partly in this book. So yes, why not? And maybe I want to explain a little bit, you know, I think that there is a difference uh, of, or what it actually means to be proud. You know, it means something, I mean, you talk about something, we are happy and we are all coming, we are, many of us are coming from this surroundings where this was a very bad word. <laughs> but you know we can feel proud of ourselves because we did something or of what we are or you know there is this pride that takes us to you know it's more boasting than pride you know yes i did this you didn't you know when we compare ourselves to someone yeah. else then it becomes a bad thing you know but if it's yes. just something that where i talk about myself It's, I think it's very good to be proud of, I'm proud of myself that I, you know, with all things happening that I decided to come out and handle my yes. life. I'm proud of how I handled things at the time. So, yeah, I think it's, it's good to feel proud yeah, that's a good of point. ourselves. Yeah, so poo 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 yeah. all the demons of history that told us that we are not allowed to be proud of, of ourselves. We can be proud of ourselves, but not proud over others, maybe. That's how I would put it. That that is that is an important Yeah, that is an important point. And also that is the kind of pride that is um that has inspired uh the very celebration of LGBT pride uh, events um, is in that sense. Um, because then you have people criticizing us and they may say, well, you know, uh, uh, the Bible has a very different uh, opinion about pride, huh? 
and they'll then quote the prophets and just say, oh, well, Babylon and, and all those proud places, you know, they will fall, you know, because uh, of their pride and what have you. But that's pride in a very different sense, because that's more like what, what you were mentioning. There's a difference here because pride in the sense of you are feeling arrogant and you are better than everybody else. That is not really pride. It's more like arrogance, isn't it? Exactly. And exactly. whereas the, the other pr kind of pride is to is acceptance and it's celebration of uh, good things that have happened to you and that you have achieved. Yes. Yes. And I'm not comparing myself to anyone else, but to myself. So I think, yeah, um, that's, that's a good thing. So, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about you and your story? We'll still talk about uh, your books, uh, especially the last one. Is there anything that you would like to add before we finish up this part of the interview? Mm, lots of things. Uh, so <laughs> I, you you just go ahead and stop me, right? If if I if I go on for too long. Um, one thing that, that is important to me is that, and, and this takes me a little bit back to what we were saying about education earlier, is that I have come to realize in recent years what a great part in my background and education has been based on assumptions more than on facts. And I'm particularly referring to LGBTQ affairs, sexual orientation and gender identity, and the Bible. Um, and this is obviously uh, what is inspiring me also for my own biblical work. But I've come to realize, and, and, and this is fairly easy to document if you take the time to do it, that much of what we have been taught, uh, particularly in church settings, has to do with tradition uh, that are post-biblical. They, they quote the Bible, but they read them from a post-biblical position, which changes things because the Bible was written in a very different context. Mm. And words had a different meaning back then than they do now. All words change meaning over time. So that has been a huge discovery uh, for me, and which also uh, contributes, of course, to 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 to, feed, to my to my feeling um, inspired by the biblical work because it, the Bible has become such a, a great friend for me. You know, I I don't know how to put it, but it's like. I don't have sort of this reverent feeling about oh the Bible. You know, you see maybe it has a cross on the cover or something and you take it down with reverence and you open it sort of with trembling hands and sort of in, in a great devotion. No, for me, the Bible is like a friend. You, you just, you check on the Bible. What does the Bible say here? You know, and how, how, how am I supposed to understand this? You know, what interpretations are available? So that for me is, I don't know. I, I just feel so excited mm. uh, about the, the greatness of the Bible, but greatness in the sense of accessibility. But it takes a little while before you get to that because you have to work your way through all the other stuff that people have been teaching you or imposing on you in some cases. So yes, for me, that's an important point to bring up. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your personal story, for being ready to be vulnerable for our viewers and listeners and in front of me i always tell my guests especially when they are personal you know it's it's like a gift that i receive and i cherish so thank you for the gift that you gave me today dear viewers and listeners this was this part of the personal story you can of course listen to the other part where we talk more about renato's book so look around or it will even be a possibility after this video to click to his to the second part of this interview 
So see you in that interview or for another podcast, depending on what you were watching. Uh, so dear viewers and listeners, see you soon. And Renato, see you very soon. So <laughs> bye. See you, everyone. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. <laughs>